Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn to uh, Psalm chapter 32. While you're turning there, one uh, announcement that I forgot to make during the introduction for those that are watching and those that are here in the room is that next Sunday afternoon we are planning uh, here at the church to have a cookout on our, uh, out in our parking lot area in the grounds back there. And uh, we would love to have anybody that would like to attend to that. We felt like it would be probably a little bit easier for some of our people that maybe don't feel comfortable yet coming into a confined room and being really in close proximity to people, maybe for, for just their own personal safety, may feel a little more comfortable being outdoors in the sunlight and being able to spread out out there. So we're going to be having a cookout on the 28th. Um, and we will uh, be meeting about 5.30. We'll have burgers already cooked, and everything's already going to be kind of prepackaged for everyone. But in order to get the proper amount of food, we need to have an RSVP that you're planning on coming. So we've sent out a couple of emails and a couple of Facebook posts on our church Facebook page, and many of you have already responded with your intention to come. But you may not be getting emails, or you may not see those Facebook posts, and you, or you may not have access to that. And if you do not... And we certainly would ask you to let us know today. You can, you can talk to me or you can talk to Whitley or you can talk to Ken Bush and let any of us know and we'll make sure to include you and your family in that list. I think we have about 80 that are planning on coming right now. So it looks like it's going to be a good group and, and uh, we hope that you will be there as well. Well, today we're going to talk in our summer series on Psalms uh, about Psalm chapter 32 in a message that uh, I've entitled, Coming Clean. Now, I want to share with you a story that I think illustrates in a very small way some of what David is talking about in this psalm from my own personal life. I can still remember what happened as though it happened last week, even though it took place 35 years ago. And when I tell this story, on the grand scale of things, it really was not a minor event. Many of you are going to say, well, yeah, that was probably a bad decision, but in the grand scheme of things that I've done in my life, it was probably rather minor. It's just another example of bad teenage judgment and not doing initially what you knew to be right. But it was the lesson that I learned after the event itself that embedded itself in my mind and still carries with me to this day. I was a junior in high school, and uh, it was in the fall. We had a football game, and we were having an after football game dance in the school gymnasium. And so at that time, I did not have a car. I had a driver's license. I did not have a car. My car was driving my dad's truck. And so my dad um, was at the house. I borrowed his truck. I drove to the football game and had planned to stay and attend the uh, dance afterwards. My normal curfew at that time was 8, 11 o'clock p.m., but my mom had decided that day to extend that curfew because of the dance until midnight. Now, my sole reason for going to the dance and it was not because I had any sense of rhythm and ability to dance, but because I had a crush on a girl and wanted to go and uh, spend some time with her. She had had a car wreck a few weeks before the dance and had broken her leg and was on crutches and was unable to dance anyway, which was really uh, good for me. And so I found this young lady at the dance and began to talk with her and sit with her while all of our friends and others were out in the school gym dancing, and we just sat and conversed for a while until about the time that she was ready to go home. She had come there with her sister, and she asked me if I could drive her home because her sister was riding with her boyfriend and she didn't want to ride, so yes, absolutely, I can drive you home. And so uh, I thought this is all working out just like I wanted it to. And so I loaded her up in my dad's truck and drove to her house. And we pulled in her driveway a little past 11 o'clock. And we decided to sit out. It was a cold night. And we decided to sit out in the truck for a little while and continue talking to one another. Uh, shortly after that, her sister and her boyfriend and several other friends all pulled up to the house around the same time. And they all pulled in behind my dad's truck, effectively blocking me in the driveway and making it unable for me to leave. I thought, well, no big deal. We'll just hang out here for a little while, and then I'll take off. Everybody, you know, everybody's got a curfew. Everybody's got to be home. Well, it became 12 o'clock, and then it became 1230, and then it became 1 o'clock, and nobody was leaving. And I couldn't get out. 
And I didn't want to be the nerd who walked up to all of the other people and said, uh, hey, can you move your cars? Because uh, my parents said I have to be home. And I was embarrassed to, to ask them to do that. And so I chose to stay there beyond my extended curfew and deal with the consequences. I didn't want to be the one to break up the group fund by asking people to move their cars. Eventually, I left her house about 2.15 in the morning and began heading home. And when I got in the driveway, I, I, began to, uh, I began to be very, very nervous about my fate and what awaited me on the other side of the door. I slowly opened up the door, expecting my mom or dad to be sitting in the living room waiting for me and to face the inevitable reckoning. I literally had that picture in my mind like a lot of us see in those movies when the, when the child comes home past curfew and the house is dark and they're creeping through the house and the light turns on and there's your dad, you know. I was expecting that. And I'm walking through the house and I could hear my dad snoring in the bedroom um, so I knew he was asleep. My mom didn't appear to be anywhere. It was around 2.30 in the morning. And I thought to myself, they're asleep. And, and I, I'm not going to get in trouble. <laughs> so I slowly crawled to my bed and went to, went to sleep. And we had to get up early the next morning because we were heading to a football game that morning. And so I got up early and only had a few hours of sleep. And I was expecting that inevitable question. Uh, how were things? How'd it go last night? What time did you get home? And so I just sat there in, in dread, eating my breakfast and expecting that question. But as the minutes turned into more minutes and more minutes, my parents never asked me what time I got home. I, I sat there literally in a sweat thinking, I know they know. I know they know I came in late. They're just toying with me like a, like a little cat playing with a mouse or a bird. And uh, they're eventually going to swing the hammer down and I'm going to be grounded until I'm 30 years old. But it became clear that they were blissfully ignorant of my act of insubordination. And then, all of a sudden, the guilt began to creep in. And I began to feel this enormous sense of guilt because I knew that I had disobeyed my parents' wishes and that they did not know about it. And I feared that probably one of my neighbors were going to say, what were you doing coming home at 2.30 in the morning to my dad and him thinking, 2.30 in the morning, I was asleep. So I had a feeling that somewhere along the lines, the gig was going to be up and I was going to get reported. So what am I supposed to do? My stomach began to turn in knots. And after about two hours of agony and guilt, I finally went into my mom's room, sat down with her and confessed to her my transgression. I shared with her what happened. I shared about taking the young lady home and kind of getting blocked in, not being able to get out, being too embarrassed to ask to leave early, and knowing that I stayed out past my curfew and I said, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. I threw myself out there waiting on the gavel to pound to seal my fate and ensuring that I would never stay out past 7 o'clock ever again. But as I said these things to my mom, and she's probably watching this morning, she she said with great calmness, she said, I understand. Thank you for sharing this with me. Um, I, I, I'm, you know, I understand, and um, don't worry about it. And in that moment, what I experienced was not the righteous judgment for my transgression, but what I experienced was the grace and mercy that came as a result of my confession. Now, I don't share that story with you to to share with you my virtue as a young man and to make you think that the most egregious sin I ever committed in my life was staying out two hours past curfew. Um, I have much more egregious sins and serious transgressions in my life to which my parents do not know about and I will not be sharing them this morning. But I did learn a life-transforming lesson that day that stayed with me for 35 years and that is it's always better to come clean. And I learned that confession in our lives is the pathway to the courts of grace and mercy, while concealment in our lives is the pathway to a prison of guilt and misery. The psalmist David learned that lesson, but he learned it the hard way, because he did just the opposite. He tried to conceal his transgression and confessed it only once the deed had been uncovered and the ugly truth had been exposed. 
And then when he expressed that confession, he experienced the grace and mercy that comes from the Lord. And Psalm chapter 32 is his recording of what happened after he came clean with God and confessed his sin before the Father. I want to read it if you would join me in verse 1. The Bible says, probably under the headings in your Bible, it'll say something like, Blessed are the forgiven. And in verse 1 it says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then the the text switches to God speaking to the writer. And God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. And then goes back to David. David says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And many truths and lessons we can take from Psalm 32, but really the essence of the entire psalm boils down to this one central truth that David is trying to make clear to you and me. And it's in your notes and if you have access to those notes, they're in front of you in the, in the pew racks where we usually have the hymnals. And that truth is simply this. Real spiritual blessing and growth can only come in our lives when we fully and freely acknowledge and confess our sinful condition and keep open accounts with God. If we really want to experience in our lives blessing, if we really want to experience in our life personal growth, if we really want to experience in our life a sense of connectiveness to God, it's only going to come when we fully and freely acknowledge our sinful condition and the sins that we have committed to the Lord, and when we choose to keep open accounts with God. Now, without asking for a show of hands, I would ask today, how many of you in here have skeletons in your closet? We use that phrase a lot, and most of us know what, those, what that means, right? It means that these are those things that you've done in your past that you really don't want anyone to find out about. The old saying goes that everybody's got them, and that's true. And for most of us in here, it may be something that maybe you and some friends did when you were young and immature. And you got caught, and you paid the price for it, and you put it behind you, and you hope that nobody finds out about it. It might be only a one-time indiscretion, a one-time lapse of judgment. It might be a long-term pattern of mistakes. It could be a family secret that's buried that you don't want anybody to find out about. But the truth is that nobody who sits in this room, nobody who watches on live stream, nobody residing in the city of Decatur is left in this world untainted by mistakes. Nobody can stand here and say with certainty that there are not things in your past, words that you spoke, thoughts that you thought or decisions that you made that you don't now regret and that you don't want others to find out about. Everybody's got skeletons in their closet. And King David had skeletons in his closet and he had some really big ones. And the story behind Psalm 32 is an all too familiar story where David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Anybody ever been there before? Anybody ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? The Bible tells us, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, his servants with him, and all of Israel. 
in the time when the kings were to go out and lead the armies in battle, the brave King David made the decision to stay in Jerusalem. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was where he wasn't supposed to be. And the Bible doesn't really tell us what his motivation was. Maybe David had just gotten lazy, didn't want to go to war anymore. Maybe David had gotten overconfident and believed that his army really didn't need him, that his army was powerful enough to fight the battle without him. Whatever was the case, when David was supposed to be on the battlefield, instead he was back in the palace. And I question sometimes how many times have we ever gotten in trouble for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, for not being where we were supposed to be, but choosing to take a different path. And then something happened that David did not expect, but in a flash of a moment would alter the course of his life. The Bible tells us that while the army was out to battle, King David went out one evening and began to look out on his rooftop and survey his kingdom there in Jerusalem. And as he was on the top of his palace looking down upon the city, his eyes happened to look in the wrong place, a casual glance in one direction that would alter the course of his life forever. David looked down and on the rooftop he saw a beautiful young lady who was bathing on her rooftop. And you probably know the rest of the story. David inquired of who the young lady was. He had her summoned to his palace. And even though she was a married woman, he continued to engage in conversation and relationships with her, eventually committing adultery and eventually getting Bathsheba pregnant. When she reported to David that she had become pregnant, David then tried to cover his sin by bringing her husband home from the battlefield and, and giving him the benefits of conjugal rights with his wife, hoping that somehow or another it would appear that the baby was Uriah's baby. But Uriah was a righteous man who refused to take part in that when his brothers were on the battlefield. He didn't want to dishonor them, so he chose not to, to engage in that, and instead he slept outside of the home. When David realized that he couldn't cover his sin, he decided instead to send Bathsheba's husband to the front of the battle lines and had him basically killed as a casualty of war. And then he thought to himself his problem was over. He instead took the grieving widow Bathsheba as his wife and nobody would know what really happened. Except one person did know and it was the Lord God in heaven. And God made it known to Nathan the prophet who eventually confronted David and confronted David about the sin in his heart and the hypocrisy of his life. And so in shame, David confessed his sin to Nathan and to the Lord. David records a psalm about this confession in Psalm chapter 51, in which he writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. King David confronted the full ugliness of his sinful actions and confessed fully his sin before a holy and almighty God. And this is what we call coming clean with God. It means that you and I reach a point where the guilt of our actions so overwhelms us that we must have a moment when we confess them to the Lord and to those that we have wronged. When the, the guilt of our choices and the things that we have willfully chosen so overwhelms us that we have no other choice but to come clean and confess them first of all to God and then to those who have been affected by them. And when we do, we experience what David is talking about in Psalm 32, which is the blessing of forgiveness. Psalm 32 is what's called a penitential psalm. It's a mirror psalm with Psalm chapter 51. And it's really the second part of David's confession song that he wrote in Psalm 51. And in it, we see four key components about what it means to come clean with God. I want to share those with you this morning. Four key components about coming clean. And the first of those is what I would call the pathway to blessing. The pathway to blessing. 
David talks about this in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32 when he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David the psalmist starts by showing us that there is a promise of blessing and there is a pathway to get to the blessing of God. Now it's interesting because most of the time in our culture when we use the word blessing, we don't use it the same way that the Bible does because blessing in our culture and in our time usually means a certain sense of personal prosperity. It could be financial blessing, it could be material blessing, it could be health and, and the blessing of having a healthy body, but we often refer to blessing as some kind of tangible reward in our life that accompanies good choices. But blessing in the Bible is different than that. The term is often translated as happy, but again, happiness is another difficult term because happiness in our life, in our day and time, is, is really a temporal emotion that is grounded in favorable circumstances. And what I mean by that is that when our circumstances are favorable, it, it produces happiness. But when our circumstances turn unfavorable, our happiness leaves and we're left to deal with unhappiness. For instance, yesterday I was cutting my yard, cutting my grass, doing my yard work. And uh, I cut the grass with a lawnmower and I, I did the edging with my edger. And I was, I was really happy that I was almost done. I got my weed eater out and I was doing the final trimming around. And I got... I was finishing up the front yard, about to, move to, about to move to the backyard to clear out the fence on the backside. And right at the end of the front yard, as I was using the weed eater, all of a sudden I heard a, a pop and felt a little vibration in the weed eater. And my weed eater motor was running, but the little, but the little drive shaft had somehow or another become separated. And so at the end, all I had was line that was just sitting there looking at me. And in that fleeting moment... My happiness with having a job that was almost done was eclipsed. And I was gone, I was sent into unhappiness because my circumstances had changed. That's the problem with happiness when we define it as a temporal emotion based on the reality of our circumstances. Blessing in the Bible is instead a sense of peace and a sense of internal happiness that comes from being in a right relationship with God. When the psalmist says, blessed is the one, he's talking about a person who has come to a right standing with God. And he says that the pathway to real blessing begins with dealing honestly with our sin. Unconfessed and unresolved sin in our lives blocks the pathway of peace and relational harmony with God. And David uses four terms here to describe sin. He gives us four different classifications of sin and their consequences. The first of those, he says, is transgression. The word transgression means to cross a boundary. It means it, it's, a, it's a form of rebellion against authority. And when we transgress, when we cross God's boundaries, it creates a relational divide between us and God. And our sin is a transgression of God's boundaries and of His holy character. But then he uses another word, which is just called sin. Sin in the Bible means to miss the mark. It, it's, it's, it's the picture of, of uh, an arrow that is misfired or, or a target that you're shooting at with a, with a gun or some other instrument, and you totally miss the target altogether. You go away. That's what... That's what Sin means, it means to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark of God's standard in your life. And he uses the word iniquity in verse 2. The word iniquity means something that is morally perverse or distorted. It's a sense of twisting something that is true and right, such as God's commandments, but you twist them and distort them to where they cannot be recognized anymore. And then he uses a fourth term, the term deceit, which speaks of fraud, lying, and deception. And all of these, what they present to us is that sin in the Bible is presented to us, most importantly, not just as a violation of God's law, but the breaking of a relationship with God. You think for a second about the Garden of Eden. 
and the time when Adam and Eve sinned, and when they ate of the fruit of the tree, the Bible says their eyes were opened. What did they do after that? What did they do once they understood the reality that had changed in their lives? What did they do? The Bible tells us that they, they felt naked and exposed. They covered themselves with leaves, and they ran and hid from God, the same God that they had walked with in the garden day after day after day after day for an, an innumerable period of time that the Bible doesn't tell us about, this fellowship that they had enjoyed with God instead of running to God and they recognized that their relationship to God had been broken and instead of running to Him, they ran away from Him. Perfect relational fellowship had been shattered and forgiveness is about restoring relationship. And so the pathway to real blessing begins with restoring relationship to God that has been broken. The psalmist tells us that God deals with our sins in several ways. First of all, the Bible tells us that the transgression is forgiven. The word forgiven means to be born away. It's, it's, the, it's the picture in Judaism where, where the priest would take the sins of the people and he would pray over them and he would put them on the head of what was known as the scapegoat. And he would confess the sins of the people to the scapegoat and the goat would be taken out in the wilderness and let go and it would walk out through the wilderness and it would take the sins of the people away. That's what forgiveness means. It means to bear our sins away from us. But then he says our sins are covered. This, this word doesn't mean that they're, they're kind of buried in a hole in the backyard. It means that the blood of Christ covers them, it washes over them, it completely blots them out. And then it says that the person's iniquity is not counted against them. This word not counted means the word reckoning or, or in some words the word imputation is used. And the word imputation is an important word spiritually because it means that something is credited to our spiritual accounts, that, that our sin has left us with a deficit in God's standard of righteousness. And so instead of that account being reckoned to us that, or being imputed to us, that instead, because of Jesus Christ and His perfect righteousness, His righteousness is placed in our spiritual account and brings our balance to completion. Spurgeon once said, The man who is blessed is blessed indeed, who has a substitute to stand for him, to whose account all the debts that he has may be set down. This is the pathway to blessing. And the application is that until you and I make the decision to be honest with God about our sin and to come clean, we will never know the pathway of blessing that God has for us. And I've learned the hard way that you can pray all you want to God to bless your home, to bless your marriage, to bless your job, but none of those will happen until you first deal with the stuff that's in your heart. The pathway to blessing comes through confession. But we see, secondly, the consequences of concealment. The consequences of concealment. Verses 3 and 4 says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. He gets to this point and he uses the word selah, which means it's a pause. As they would sing this song, they would pause and reflect on that. It's like the psalmist feels such an incredible weight when he talks about this heavy hand and this dry heat. He just stops and just goes, Ugh. Feel the weight of the consequences of concealment. You know, there are several different ways that we can deal with sin. We can conceal or cover our sin. This is what Adam and Eve tried to do. We can try to compare and contrast our sin. We can say, well, you know what? I know it was wrong, but, but when I think about what this person's done, and we can try to compare and contrast our sin, but that doesn't work. We can, we can try to condone and justify our sin and try to say things like, well, everybody does it. Or we can confess our sins. And the psalmist here talks about the, the heavy consequences of trying to conceal our sins. When I was a kid, we lived in a little home on what's called Forest Boulevard in Columbus. And I remember vividly the back of that house had a, had a little patio. And the patio was surrounded by about a three to four foot 
little brick ledge that, that went around the edge of it. And I was playing baseball out in the backyard and I was throwing the baseball up against that brick ledge and, and fielding grounders off of that. And my mom had placed several plants in spaghetti jars that she was growing on the top of that ledge. And, and one of my throws went awry. I, I sinned, I missed the mark of my throw. And it went awry and it hit one of those spaghetti jars and it broke it. And in that moment, as a six-year-old kid, I had a choice to make. The choice was to go to my mom and say, Mom, I'm sorry, I broke your spaghetti jar, I broke your planter, um, I apologize and, and confess that sin to her, but that's not what I did. <laughs> I thought to myself in that spur of a moment, well, she's got like six or seven of them here, she's not going to miss one, and I don't want to get in trouble, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw the spaghetti jar away. So I ran up to the patio and I started to grab up the shards of glass to go throw them over the fence. And as I picked up those shards of glass, one of them cut my left thumb, gashed a massive gash in my left thumb. I, I dropped the glass. My thumb was bleeding profusely. I was crying out in agony. I ran into the house holding my thumb. I went into the bathroom. I tried to wipe all the blood off. It continued to bleed. I tried to put Band-Aids on it. Band-Aids wouldn't stick because of the blood. My mom eventually came in and found this bloody mess all over her bathroom floor and counter and my thumb bleeding and, and it took me to the, to the ER and I had to have three stitches put in my thumb. And I learned that day the consequences of concealment in our lives. And this is what David's talking about when he talks about the side effects of concealing his sin. He said... When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. These these bones are the internal skeletal structure of our body. They're supposed to be the strongest part of our body. And yet he said, I felt the weight of my sin all the way internally to where it felt like my bones were turning to powder. He said, I groaned like a, a wild animal howling. When he began to think about what all happened, it just created this misery and this agony internally to where he couldn't pray, he couldn't talk to God. He didn't even really want to go to the temple. He just groaned because of what he was feeling. Then he talks about the, the weight of the Lord's hand upon him. Day and night your hand was, was heavy upon me. He felt a heaviness in his spirit as the relational intimacy that he once had with the Father and that he longed for had been severed by the atrocity of his sin. And he speaks of his strength being dried up. This is a reference to the long, dry seasons that took place in, in Israel, where for months at a time they would get no rainfall and the ground would get hard and dry and dusty. And nothing of life can grow in the midst of dry, dusty ground. And he said, because I didn't confess, it's like the refreshing rains of God had been taken from me and nothing of growth could happen. William Plummer says in his commentary on Psalms that David had too much conscience in his life to live under the burden of such sins, but he had too little humility to confess to God the whole truth. And this is what describes the burden and the weight of concealed sin. It gnaws at our conscience, but at the same time, it hardens us in our pride to think that somehow or another we can get away with it. And Plummer continues in his commentary, speaking of David, he said he had a conscience of sin which he believed to be unpardoned, but he was not roused at this moment to cry for forgiveness. Remorse was gnawing internally at his vitals. His spirits ran low, yet this concealment did not bring relief to him because sins never grow out of date. And there are no statutes of limitations for crimes either at God's bar or the bar of our conscience. This is the terrible price of unconfessed sin. It's a dirty conscience. It's a terrible burden. It's a gap between you and God. It's broken relationships and broken choices. And the reality is that what sin does in our life is it brings brokenness. This is the consequence of concealment. But then we see thirdly, the gift of confession. Verses 5 through 9, we see David taking 
advantage of the gift of being able to confess his sin to God. He said in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. This is confession. I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then God, speaking to David, answers back and says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. David shows us that the pathway to forgiveness and blessing runs through the highway of confession. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. You know what has happening here is David eventually reaches a point where the pain of concealment was greater than the pain of acknowledgement. And that's a good place to be. It's a good place to be when the pain of concealing our sin becomes harder in our life than the pain of admitting it to God. Confession in the Bible means to agree with what God says about your sin. It's made up of a New Testament word. It's a compound word called homo legeo. And the word means to say the same thing as. In other words, it's to acknowledge and to agree with God that what you have done is a sinful violation of His commandments. It means that you finally come to see your sin from God's perspective as a violation of His holiness and as an offense against him and not just the freedom of your choice. You see, one of the problems in our world today is that oftentimes we try to see our choices in life or the things in our life that the Bible would call sin, we try to see them as the, the freedom of our will to be able to choose those things instead of seeing them in reality from the perspective that God sees them. We try to see them from the perspective of what everybody else sees. That's why we, that's why we have a tendency to condone our sins by saying, well, uh, you know, everybody does it. Everybody makes mistakes. Well, that's true. It's an absolutely true statement. But that's not a confession. Or we tend to try to, we try to compare our sins and say, well, yeah, I know I shouldn't have done that, but, but man, if you knew some of the people that I work with, or if you knew some of the people in my family... It doesn't matter. Confession is a gift of grace that the Holy Spirit gives to us as followers of Jesus Christ. Because apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot see the sin in our life as the violation that it really is. Instead, we see it as our right, something that we are entitled to enjoy. But by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit comes and opens up our spiritual eyes to see our sin and its consequences. And we need to remember this, that when we confess sin to God, we are not telling God something that He doesn't already know. When you go to your prayer closet and you say, you know what, God, I really blew it this week. I said this, I shouldn't have said that to my coworker. I shouldn't have taken part in this particular discussion that we were having. I shouldn't have really put that on Facebook because it was a poor reflection of what it means to be a follower of Christ. I, I shouldn't have really allowed my thoughts to dwell on that particular person the way they did. It was an unhealthy, unholy thing. And, and when we go to God and we say those things to Him, He doesn't go, <gasps> He doesn't say, wow. I never knew that. God knows every single thing that's going on in our hearts. Now some would say, well, if God knows everything, including everything about my sin, then what good does it do to tell Him about it? But you see, confession is not just acknowledging our guilt. Confession is acknowledging our need for redemption and change. In 1 John, the Apostle John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, if we say, oh, I got no sin, I got nothing going on right now. I've got nothing between me and God. If we say that, we're lying to ourselves and we don't walk in the truth. Verse, eight, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. 
What the Apostle John tells us is that if we try to conceal our sin or to say to God or to others, everything's good, I don't have any sin between me and God, God says that we are lying to ourselves. Not only that, we are also saying that God is a liar because God knows the truth of our sin and says that we are sinners who have, who have violated His Word. And so if we don't acknowledge our sin, we are in essence calling God a liar. But if we confess our sins, we find the pathway to forgiveness. And this is not in your notes, but the psalmist basically gives us three rewards that come from the gift of confession. The first of those is what I would call gracious cleansing. Gracious cleansing. This is found in verse 5 when he says, I acknowledge my sin. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What is that? That's gracious cleansing. To forgive the iniquity means that the stain of sin is removed and the offense or the debt is forgiven. Isaiah 1.18 says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they will become as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is gracious cleansing where when we confess it, we experience the cleansing that only God can bring to our souls. But secondly, we see a secure confidence. In verses 6 and 7, we see secure confidence. The Bible tells us that David not only confessed his sins, but that that confession brought a sense of security in the midst of life storms. He talks about... uh, uh, In verse 6, really the central thought of the whole psalm, he is saying, if confession is really the pathway to blessing, then let us pray and confess while we have opportunity. Let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. If confession is the pathway to blessing, then let us all take advantage of that while God may still be found. And then he gives two examples of when we confess What happens when we get a clean slate? The first of those is this protection from the rush of great waters. It's a reference to the great storms of life that David knew well. And as a result of his sin, later on, David would experience some storms in his life. For instance, the child that was conceived as a result of his sin would die. And David would have to go through the storm of losing a child. And then he would deal with further storms as he would have rebellion within his home. And his children would rebel against his authority, one even trying to overtake the throne. David would deal with all of these storms as a result of of the consequences of his sin in his own personal life. But he would say in the midst of all of these storms, that in the rush of great waters, that they would not reach him and they would not overwhelm him. And then David says that God is a hiding place that preserves the Christian in times of trouble. He says, you preserve me from trouble. You're a hiding place. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is secure confidence. But then we see in verses 8 and 9, divine counsel. Divine counsel. Because in verse 8, God begins to speak to David and says that because of confession, God himself will now instruct and counsel David in the ways of life. Because that sin that had separated David from God had been acknowledged and lifted up, the pathway to instruction through the Holy Spirit was now opened once again. And David also says, or God says in verse 9, that we're not to be like a mule or a stubborn horse that has to be guided by a bit being forced into his mouth. In other words, God's going to get out of us what God wants to get out of us. He's either going get to get it out of us by our willing submission to him, or he's going to get it out of us by putting something in our, in our lives that's going to force us to do what he wants us to do. It's the picture of someone who refuses to properly acknowledge God's holiness and their sinful violation of it. And so, like a diligent farmer, God has to go get the stubborn mule and pull it by its mouth to lead it where it needs to go. And it's a reminder to us that we have way too many stubborn mules in the church of God. Too many people who refuse to see and acknowledge the sin of their hearts and choose instead to conceal or to condone or to compare it. So we see the gift of confession, but then finally we see the joy of forgiveness. The joy of forgiveness. 
Verses 10 and 11 say, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We see this, this joyful song of worship, this joyful benediction being sung to the Lord. David gives us a great proverb when he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. In other words, people who live their lives in unrepentant and unacknowledged sin bring destruction and sorrow on their lives. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Perhaps you know the truth of this statement in your own life or in your family. But then David continues by saying, Steadfast love, though, surrounds those who trust in the Lord. And there cannot be genuine trust and faith in the Lord in the presence of unconfessed sin. You see, when we refuse to confess our sin, we show that we trust in our understanding of things instead of God's. And when we can, but when we trust God in God's ways and confess our sins, then we find ourselves surrounded by the steadfast and constant love of God. Which leads us at the end of verse 11 into a song of joyful worship. After thinking through all of this that he went through and the dry heat and the, and the wasting of his bones and the gift of confession and, the, and the, the divine counsel and the secure confidence that he had from the Lord, his only response at the end is, be glad, rejoice, shout for joy. What is this? This is worship. Joy and gladness are the natural language of a forgiven soul. And there is no joy like the joy of having a clean account with God. There is no joy like knowing the Lamb of God and that He has paid the price for your sin. There's no joy like knowing that Jesus took on the penalty for your sin and bore your guilt and shame. And not only that, but His perfect righteousness has been credited to your account so that if you would take advantage of the gift of confession and confess your sin to Him and lean on His mercy, you can stand completely righteous before God. It is the joy of forgiveness. In closing, I'll give you one more quote from William Plummer who says this, The criminal may be pardoned of his offense, but he is returned to a scorning world with a tainted name and a ruined character. He is released from the temporal penalty of his guilt to seek shelter and substance where he may, compelled almost to return to the former associates of his sin as the only beings who will admit him into their brotherhood without a sneer or reproach. No friendly voice is by his side to instruct and teach him in the way he should go. No eye looks kindly on him to guide and direct him. Worse than all, he has no peace within and no change of heart. Left to himself, the criminal is as vile as he ever was. But the sinner who has fled to Jesus finds all he needs. Grace, friends, a home, eternal oblivion of his past crimes, and assurance of everlasting victory over all his foes. Oh, how amazing is God's gospel plan. The application is simple. You and I need to keep short accounts with the Lord. The reality is that God knows everything about us anyway. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And so refusing to come clean with God doesn't hurt God. It only locks us up in a spiritual prison where we hold the key, and that key is confession. And real spiritual blessing and growth can only come when we fully and freely acknowledge and confess our sinful condition and keep open accounts with God. And so in closing, I would ask you to do two things. First of all, I would ask you, when you came in today, if you're a follower of Christ, you received a communion cup like this. Today would be our normal day that we would have our, our quarterly communion as a church, and our ability to do that's been very much hampered by the challenges of our day, but we wanted to still be able to celebrate that here with those who are in attendance. And so I'm going to ask you to take this cup if you've received it today, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in the gospel of Christ, if you've trusted in Jesus to save you, and you know that His righteousness covers you, then in just a moment, part of our invitation today is to respond by taking communion as a faith family. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted in the Lord, we would ask you to just take this and put it in the seat next to you, not partake in it, 
Because the Bible tells us that you can't take on the body and blood of Christ as a remembrance of something that's not true in your heart and in your life. So you just leave that and that's perfectly fine. But in just a moment, after I pray, I'm going to give us an opportunity to take communion. Um, and we will do that as a, as a response of worship and invitation this morning. So would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And before we take communion this morning, the, the, there's two things. Number one, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you're watching us today on the live stream and, and, and God has made it clear to you that you don't know him, that you can't, you can't enjoy the beautiful blessings of forgiveness because your sin is still before you and God. You've never trusted him with that. You've never confessed that to him. You never trusted in his, in his righteousness to save you. And we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Whether you're in this room, whether you're watching on the live stream, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to that this morning. And if you're here in the building and you need to talk to someone about your relationship with the Lord, then you stay afterwards and I'll be glad to talk with you about that. If you're watching online and you'd like to talk to someone, there's going to be a phone number and, a, and an email up there and you feel free to call me or or, or email me on that, and I'll be glad to talk to you about your relationship with the Lord. But the other part of the invitation today is that for those of us who are followers of Christ, let's take just a moment where we are, and let's, let's keep short accounts with God. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, I would ask you just to reflect into your own heart and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you things in your life where you have some unconfessed sin. And maybe those things won't come to mind right now. Maybe they'll come to mind later on this afternoon as you're meditating and reflecting on the Lord. But if there's any unconfessed sin in your life, if there's anything in your life that you say, you know what, I just haven't been honest with myself and with God about this. Maybe it was some impure thoughts that you've had in the last couple of weeks. Maybe it was a fit of anger that you felt self-justified, but at the end you just felt dirty and you felt like something was wrong. Maybe it's a Maybe it's an unreconciled relationship with another person that you've never truly reconciled with them. Whatever it is, if you have unconfessed sin, I invite you this morning just to submit that to the Lord. Say, God, I acknowledge to you this is something I've done and it was wrong. I confess it to you today. I say the same thing about it that you say. And I ask you to cleanse me of it, forgive me of it, and restore my right relationship with you. And after you've done that, I invite you to go ahead, if you're in the room today, and you can take off the little seal off the top of your cup, and in there you'll have a little wafer. And I would read these, scripture, these words of Scripture to you that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so church, I invite you now to take of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.